February 14, 2018, in the city of Parkland, Florida, in the county of Boward, and we're looking at Marjorie Stoneman High School. It's a beautiful sunny day, and the kids are at school, and a man drives up in an Uber, and he's got a black duffel bag. And inside that duffel bag, he's got an AR-15 rifle. He's carrying numerous magazines with him. He's got more magazines in that black duffel bag. He enters the school grounds unobtrusively and walks directly to one of the buildings. Prior to the enter the building, he removes that carbine from his duffel bag, inserts a magazine, racks back the slide, enters the door. To his left is a fire alarm and he pulls that fire alarm and as the buzzers and bells go off and the kids according to protocol start coming out into the hallway he unleashes a fuselage of fire. He captures these kids in what we refer to as the fatal funnel of fire and starts mowing down these kids. Within three minutes, he has walked down that hallway, and as the kids are screaming and trying to enter the classrooms and locking the doors, he breaches entry through one of the classroom doors windows with gunfire and systematically begins shooting everything that moves in that classroom. Most of the kids in this particular building are freshmen. He finishes his shooting spree in three minutes, drops his firearm, and exits the building in the panic of kids that are running from that building screaming and manages to make good his escape. He's on campus for only six minutes. He goes down the street and within a mile finds a Subway sandwich store where he stays inside that store momentarily and then moves from the Subway sandwich store to a nearby McDonald's. And after staying in the McDonald's and believing the coast might be clear, he reinserts himself back on a sidewalk and begins his walk back to his residence when he is detained at gunpoint and taken into custody without further incident. The suspect in this case, 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz, a former student of Marjorie Stoneman High School. He leaves behind in his wake 17 dead and many more injured. City streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. There were warnings to this behavior, warnings to this school shooting that were unheeded 
and unacted upon by law enforcement that went back for months prior to the shooting. In fact, there were two separate specific calls to law enforcement, one on January 5th, where a person who called the FBI on their public access line to express their concerns about Nicholas Cruz's erratic behavior and disturbing social media posts. And that reporting caller stated, I just know that kid's going to explode. Before that, there was another person who was a bail bondsman in Florida back in October of 2017 who called the FBI on their tip line and said that he had taken a snapshot of a YouTube post by a man identifying himself as Nicholas Cruz who professed that he aspired to be a professional school shooter. When the FBI was questioned about this, they said they didn't have enough info to trace that person's whereabouts, identify him, and intervene. So with me today is Tom Manson, a digital forensics investigator with policetechnical.com out of Terre Haute, Indiana. And Tom, welcome to the show. I thought you would be the perfect forensic investigator to join us on a thread of evidence so that we could talk to our listeners about the amazing world of digital forensic investigations and how someone with your qualifications could investigate these tips that want unheeded. Well, thank you, Ron. Thank you for having me on the on the program. Uh, it is a there is a lot here. There's a lot in this case, and the technical side of things uh, certainly certainly left left a lot of stones that could have been overturned. And uh, there's things that there's things that could have done could have gone better for several of these agencies. Well, let's talk about uh, and let's kind of just unpack this bag as people say these days. And we know that the FBI was contacted on two separate occasions, once by a blogger and the second time by an unknown source very close to Nicholas Cruz that he wanted to be a professional school shooter and wanted to shoot up that high school. Now, the, you know, the FBI has publicly stated, and it's proper for them to take ownership of this, and they said that there was really no way they could identify Cruz. But what's the right. forensic truth behind that response? Ron, one of the things I'd say was that just just in short, they could have done more here. They could have done more, uh, and there there were things forensically that they could have done. And if we just take a look at if we take a look at the at the at the informational tip that they they received, uh, it was the the one in September regarding the comment that he'd posted online. Cruz had posted to a to a YouTube channel. He said, "I'm going to be a professional school shooter." And I believe it was a bail bondsman said that uh, it was a chat that he had on on a YouTube channel. He had seen this this comment and he was concerned by it. So he contacted the FBI and took a screenshot of it, screenshotted the image and, and sent it to them. And uh, from from what he said later, uh, it just really wasn't wasn't followed up on it as far as it could have been. 
And, of course, we know on, on February 15th, that was when Special Agent Charge Lasky came out and said in his, in his press conference that uh, they really just didn't have the information that they needed. They said that they had conducted database reviews, some checks. Uh, they were just unable to identify the person who actually made that comment. And the forensic truth is that they could have. The forensic truth of that is that there there could have been things they could have done. Um, and we're not talking we're not talking about hardcore law enforcement techniques, and we're not talking about necessarily writing search warrants and and pursuing it that way. Uh, there are courses in open source investigations in which sources are just public. The public sources that we have right now uh, had the ability to really provide a lot of insight into who this person was and and, and maybe maybe what he was going to do and uh, really provided a much more robust picture than the FBI seemed to think that they had access to. Uh, of course, the FBI quoted these things like uh, – they they said that they'd use database searches and undoubtedly they used uh, they used NCIC undoubtedly they used CJIS based database systems to to pull up his name and I don't know what those searches would have revealed to them at the time but uh, there's other things they could have done they could have just right clicked his name they could have gone out to they could have gone out to to Google and uh, when you post something on Google you have to have an account. So if you post something to YouTube, which is a Google property, you have to have an account. And if they would have right-clicked his name, they would have seen what things he had been connected to. They would have found out information about his account, maybe even found a picture of him. Uh, that's a that's an easy first step. Uh, second one is they could have just Googled their name. You know, people talk about Googling things. They could just Google their name. Um, and a whole series of other open-source techniques that, that – uh, it just seemed it just seemed like they missed. Well, you know, we learn as investigators, especially when we're using these particular systems. I know you mentioned NCIC, National Information, uh, you know, uh, Crime Center, and of course that's a database that has a whole bunch of uh, sub databases that are associated with it, and you know, even we can go down to like driver's licenses, and uh, we can use. Um, uh, you know, ones where we have similar sounding names, like a Soundex system or something like that. But basically, uh, it's not necessarily as bad as pulling a needle out of a out, out of a haystack. There are ways that we can start focusing down on people of interest. Isn't isn't that right? It's absolutely right. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. Uh, and if if you just you know, just to provide some context for this, and this isn't this isn't a, a secret for law enforcement. It's not a secret process, and you don't have to be any kind of any kind of digital forensic person to to know this. Uh, figuring out what to do here really is a three-step process. Uh, identifying the person first of all. I mean, figuring out who this person is, uh, finding out their intentions number two, and then finding out their means of actually doing these things. Uh, the first step, though, and the critical one that seems to be what was missing was the first one, identifying the person. Uh, two and three are probably going to more than likely be be rubber meeting the road. It's going to involve uh, it's going to involve a investigator or, or a detective um, getting out there and talking to someone. So uh, that's really what the what the goal of the FBI here here was would have been to have found who this person was and provide a local agency with that information. So then they could have pursued the intentions and the means of this person, but. Uh, Things that they things that they could have done additionally here. Uh, these are uh, finding out who this person is. Uh, if they would have gone through uh, Facebook 
Facebook, Instagram, and again, I pulled up one of those apps and dropped in Nicholas Cruz's name. Now the now the now the pot's been kind of spoiled at this point, so it's, it's kind of impossible to do this. But anyone can do this. If you go to if you go to Facebook and you've got an account, you can log in there and you can type in you can type in your name and see what you're going to get. Uh, same thing with Instagram. Um, you can probably find someone's username and uh, draw something from that. Those are open source techniques, uh, not not that difficult. Hey, you know, Tom, I'm, I'm kind of one of those old dogs, and social media is a little bit new to me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm down with uh, Facebook and, and a couple of those <laughs> things, right? Sure, but, sure. But, uh, you know, talk to us a little bit about Instagram, because I'll tell you what, I'm uh, and you and I were talking before the show, and, and you know, you said, "Hey, Doc, you know, you're one of the you're one of the the perfect kind of people that are uh, my target my target audience, right? People that don't right. know too much about this stuff. You know, I'm more of a death investigator, and I use, of course, digital forensics and experts like yourself on our death investigations team uh, to try to get to the bottom of this. But me personally, I, I need help with this. Could you tell me what Instagram is and how it works?" Yeah, you know, Instagram is Instagram is a current social media platform and just like so many different platforms now, it's it's hard to define these. There used to be a time in which there was a thing called email. You know, there was no email and then one day there was email. And then we have this thing called social media and of course one day there wasn't that and then there is. But what do each of them do? Uh, one thing I'd tell you about any kind of social media if we talked about Instagram was just that all of these social media platforms, and it really doesn't matter which one you're talking about, um, all these social media platforms now are changing. They're all evolving. They're all adding things like stories, and they're adding things like the ability to communicate with different ways, and they're probably going to begin to add some encryption. Uh, they're all doing very similar things. There used to be a time in which, in which Twitter was just a, a thing where you could you just added a tweet, which was uh, 140 characters or 120 characters, and you add those up there and you know, tweet that out to somebody. But now that's uh, now you can add video, you can add all kinds of things to a, to a Twitter link, to a Twitter feed. Um, Instagram started out really as a as a place where you could, where you could post pictures, and it was specifically driven from a cell phone. So it's not a computer-based application. More people are using phones. So they have the ability to, to take pictures, uh, to maybe add some filters to them so they look pretty, so you can kind of pretty them up and add a geotags that actually would locate where you are. So if I was at the, if I was at a fair or if I was at a, at a major public venue, I could, I could tag myself and anyone that was following me could see those things. And of course, you'd add hashtags. So we have some viral capability and lots of folks could see those. Um, Instagram, um, you know, a lot of these things too have begun to coalesce over the last several years. People talk about Instagram. Well, Instagram's Instagram's run by Facebook. So uh, Facebook picked up Instagram, I think 2012 for about a billion dollars. And, uh, so it is a Facebook property, and uh, probably one of the hottest things right now in Instagram over the last year or so has been a has been their story feature. And that story feature allows people to post to post pictures, to post a 24-hour um, temporary story that can be saved in in a user's account. It's going to be saved there. But let's say I'm a follower of uh, Dr. Ron Martinelli, and you're you're posting some stories, you're posting some pictures. Uh, those will be up for about 24 hours, and I can see what you're doing. Maybe you're taking a trip to I don't know Southern California or someplace like that. You're going to go down to Lake, going to go down to Coronado or something, and you want to post pictures of it. You could post them for a for a day. Folks could see them. 
those things are out there. And that's one of the things that that's really different about Parkland, Florida, was the technology that's being driven was not being driven by law enforcement. And we know this now, but the but the media that was coming out of that environment was not being driven by the mainstream media. It was being driven by the kids that were there, that were that were in the high school. You know, that's absolutely fascinating. Now, Tom, tell me something. When you have something like Instagram, and I'm also going to ask you about Snapchat, because that's something else I don't know about. Uh, my kids know about this stuff, but I, I don't know about this stuff. Uh, you know, you're mentioning, oh, stop laughing. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. Absolutely <laughs> and, right. And, you know, you're talking about it, it provides you, like, with a 24-hour story. And I know some of these things are time-sensitive, but here's my question. Do these things go away? What, what happens to these things once the time limit is gone? Yeah, this is this is a real, this is a real big question. We, uh, we wrote about this on Snapchat. So Snapchat came out. One of the things that one of the things that folks really kind of liked about Snapchat when they started using it when this thing came out was that was that uh, it would disappear. That was that was one of the the big features of Snapchat. In fact, when we wrote about it in in 2015, we wrote uh, Snapchat. It was the self-destructing app. So when you posted something or when something went out there, it would disappear. And this was this was kind of true, kind of not. Um, when someone, when someone posts something and then they take it down, this is the question for law enforcement. It's also a question if you've got kids or if you post something yourself, uh, it's pretty common now when, when you're looking for a job or when you go out somewhere that that place will take a look at your social media and see what you posted. And some people say, well, I had, I was younger and I, I posted some things out there that I don't really want out there anymore. So if I take it down, can people still find it? Uh, they're all a little bit different, but uh, Facebook, just just to name one, Facebook says once it's gone, it's gone. Uh, so if you talk to if you talk to investigators that work with that work with police technical, and you ask them, you know, if that post is gone from Facebook, if if I posted something out there, whether it's a a picture or a comment, and I take it down, Facebook says it's gone. Um, Snapchat, of course, said that the said that things that were posted that they would be deleted quite quickly. Um, deletion was their motto. Um, but from a law from a law enforcement standpoint, if we're talking about whether law enforcement can access those those files or that material that's been posted, um, as far as state and local is concerned, uh, if it's gone, it's gone. Uh, when we start talking about other sources, you mentioned FBI capability and maybe NSA and some other sources. There's probably some room for debate about whether that material is truly gone. And from a from a company standpoint. Uh, you know, data is valuable, so it always makes you kind of wonder uh, what they've actually had. But the one thing I'd say about about the question about whether it's gone from an investigative standpoint is not so much about whether the data is gone. Like, let's say you posted a picture yourself and several people downloaded it, um, and then you deleted that picture, so that picture is no longer on your account. From a Facebook standpoint, from probably a Google standpoint, that picture's gone, but we also have the other people that saw it. So we have something that's now, even if it's not super viral, it's it's out in the wild somewhere. And so that's that's a possible source for law enforcement to begin to track that down. Um, if they find out that you've posted a picture, you, you've posted something or a comment like we knew Nicholas Cruz did, um, and even if he deleted that, we know that the, the individual in Texas had a screenshot of it and captured it. So that gives an agency something that they could track down. Sometimes the, the material is gone, 
but the actual transaction is still there. And sometimes that transaction is enough for law enforcement to begin to pursue it. Now, what do you, Tom, what do you mean about the transaction? Well, the transaction is simply just, you know, Cruz posted something. He put this thing out there and let's say he deleted it. It's gone. So you go out to, let's say you're, let's say you're an agent. Let's say you're a, so you're a detective and you go out and you find, let's say you find Nicholas Cruz and you find out who he is and um, you go out to his Facebook account and man, there's nothing out there. You know, you don't see anything out there at all, but you know that, uh, you know that he posted it because you got a screenshot from this, from this gentleman in Texas. So, you know, it's there. So, uh, with a little bit of creativity and not with a whole lot of effort, a search warrant can be written and within then maybe a couple of days, uh, maybe a couple of weeks, depending on the exigency of the circumstances, depending on how critical it is, uh, you're going to get something back from that from that entity, whether it's Facebook or whether it's Google, and they can tell you maybe not what was said, but who got it. And if they can tell you who got it, if they can tell you what the transaction was, then that's valuable. Sort of like buying something at the grocery store, something, buying something at a at uh, maybe a five and 10 from, from a previous generation. Um, you got the receipt, you got the receipt that you spent something. That's a transaction and you don't know really what they bought, but you know, they're in there buying something. And does that take, when you say the transaction, does it trace back to that person? How does it trace back to them? It's going to trace back through an IP address. And this is really, this is really where the, this is what law enforcement's, this is what they're pursuing. This is the first thing, of course, you know, as well as I do, it's the identification of anybody. You know, it's the, it's the historical issue for law enforcement. That's why we had wanted posters in the 1850s and 60s, you know, the Wild West, and we're looking for this person. The identification is always the issue. And the thing about the digital world is there's an IP address that connects that individual's computer with that post. So even though we might not have the original information, we might have not have the original picture or a video, we have the transaction, and we know where their IP address is. From that, we can begin to work back and figure out where that person is. Fantastic. Hey, Tom, let's talk more uh, about IP addresses and such when we come back from this break. You're listening to A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American Freestyle Bullfighting. The newest, most extreme, premier Western sporting events. Shorty Gorham's American Freestyle Bullfighting pits one freestyle bullfighter against a Spanish fighting bull in a matchup best described as the most dangerous dance on dirt. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the meanest? half-ton fighting bulls on earth the future of extreme sports this is not the bullfighting that you remember this is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena this is hand-to-horn combat on a level playing field for more information and schedule of events go to shortygoramafb.com or find them on facebook that's shortygoramafb.com or find them on facebook it's bullfighting time Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. 
news blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. You're with Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and digital forensic investigator, Tom Manson of policetechnical.com. And when we left off, Tom, we were talking about IP addresses. Can you just explain what an IP address is and what does it mean? And, and how do investigators use IP addresses to trace, uh, trace people back? And I'd like to get into that whole process about how we put together enough digital information to establish probable cause so we can get a search warrant. Ron, the, uh, the IP address. The IP address is just like your social security number. It's just like the address in your house. Um, when you when you do, if you send out a piece of mail to somebody, and we've all had a piece of mail come back where the, the address is undeliverable, and sometimes it's stamped that way, sometimes it's marked that way, and it comes back to us, uh, that is an address that didn't exist, and the post office didn't have that. And the post office, I don't know whether most folks know this or not, but the post office has a list of every address in the United States constantly being updated all the time. And if you uh, if you do a lot of mailing, uh, I used to work for a company that, that did a lot of mailing. They, they sent out mail to, to a lot of different law enforcement agencies, and they would run all their addresses through a, through a process to see if this was a real address or not. And if it was, then they would send that piece of mail, and if it wasn't, then they would not. And IP addresses are the same thing for your computer. It's as simple as that. And sometimes you, you might have, uh, if you've seen computer annotation, or uh, you mentioned you mentioned our website, policetechnical.com, that's a that's a name. If you type that into search engine, that that comes up and you can find it. But that's not really the address. That's the address that the world sees. That's the address that that folks see on the front end. But the actual address of our server is more something like, I don't really know what it is off the top of my head, but it's like one two three dot two three four dot something something dot something else there's really four numbers separated by three dots and that's an ip address and there might be some subnets and there might be some other you know secondary addresses like you live in an apartment building but that address connects your computer to a specific location in the world now top let me ask you this question okay so you mentioned you know your company policetechnical.com. Mine is Martinelli and Associates, Justice and Forensic Consultants. And we have these URLs, right, yeah. which is our yeah. website name. Are you saying that that IP address goes specifically to policetechnical.com or my company's name, and that's our IP address? That's it. Okay. And, so, and so, you know, IP addresses, too, just, just so you know, just so we can clarify this, because this is going to come up in a second when we... We're talking about a computer. We're talking about a web address. We're talking about your. We're talking about your company's web address that, that has an IP address to it because IP stands for Internet Protocol. It's part of the uh, TCP/IP stack. So that's a computer term, but uh, there's a lot of addressing, a lot of ways that things get processed, email and websites and text messages, and a lot of things have an IP address. Okay. So, so, yeah. So here's here's a question for you. Okay, so that would be a company. Does an email address, you know, uh, Tom, you have an email address. I've got a couple of them. Mm -hmm. Do we also have IP addresses for emails, or is it just URLs? 
the email address is going to be something different. That falls another part of the TCP IP stack. That's part of the, the way information travels. But that email address is unique. That's a unique identifier. You know that if you, if you send someone an email, that that's going to go to one location, and that's actually going to be resolved on a server, so it actually goes to the right place. Um, we've all sent emails to the wrong address, and sometimes they go, sometimes they come back to us, and they bounce back. Uh, email's a little bit different, but they are unique. And it's that it's that unique quality that that begins to to begin to eliminate part of the anonymity of the internet. It's a concept that I've spoken about before and written about. Um, anonymity is really going away. I mean, one of the foundations of this thing is the FBI couldn't seem to find Nicholas Cruz, and uh, not to take away from 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 the services that they provide to to U.S. law enforcement, they do quite a bit, but in this situation, they weren't able to find this person. And with unique IPs, with unique addresses, and uh, with EULA's license agreements, something that shouldn't be left off the table here, um, they could have, they probably could have found him a little more easily. Okay, let me bring up something, because I recently had a case uh, that required some digital forensics expertise. And it was a uh, it was a uh, child sexual case where I had a couple of adults that were sexually harassing uh, a a teenage girl, a young teenage girl. And mm -hmm. when we were doing the forensic investigation, and we were trying to you know trace those IP addresses, so there are ways out there. Uh, where people try to mask their IP addresses, is that is that correct? That is correct. Um, these are there are a variety of ways encryption works. And one thing just to just to mention this, do you remember Edward Snowden back in sure. 2015? Sure. He uh, uh, sounds like he uh, got away with a lot of information, uh, turned loose some NSA programs. One of the things that uh, I thought was interesting that struck me from his comments later was he said encryption works and uh, that is a uh, that was a fair statement because encryption does work and when we're talking about masking IPs when we're talking about an encrypted protocols uh, what that does is that is uh, it can kind of looks like spoofing that's a phrase that's used in a lot of different digital forensic concepts which is making it look like someone is someplace but they're really somewhere else uh, right. Masking. That's, what this was. right. That's right. Masking IP, so it looks like they're coming from another country, and what they're doing is they are they're routing that information probably through a different server, through through a different area, and this is this is quite common when it comes down to uh, comes down to pornography and sex trafficking, sex workers, um, narcotic activity. Mm -hmm. Many people aren't using a, a standard website to advertise these services. They are using encrypted protocols, and they are using uh, they are using uh, forensic tools themselves to, to to cleanse what they're doing. They're using uh, tunneling techniques so that they can uh, seem like they're somewhere else. But when we come down to the to the concept of, of what you're describing, the interesting thing about what you just said was that you had an active case. You had an active case that was involving people that were doing this, 
And, you know, what you just said really lends credence to investigations and detective work. And uh, we have a lot of technology, and my company focuses on that. But when it comes down to it, there is still an investigator. And the reason why you had the criminal case in front of you was not because encryption didn't work. The encryption did work. And I would be very surprised if in your case that it was a failure of the encryption that opened up that case. Uh, what it more than likely was, was an investigation. It was human interaction. It was someone that knew something wasn't right and said something. And it was from that process that law enforcement was able to probably write a search warrant and begin to pursue some of these things and uh, get the information that eventually identified the people that were involved in your case. And you know, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, it was actually the girl's mother who uh, intervened and, and was pretty smart. And she gave us uh, some real tips that uh, led to the identification of uh, both of these suspects. Sure, sure. That's right. Uh, let me ask you a question about uh, cell phones. Okay, so, you know, we're talking about, you know, text messages. Uh, and I recently did a program on a thread of evidence. I think it was our very first program. We were dealing with cyber bullying. And uh, I had a, a wonderful couple uh, from uh, actually uh, San Antonio, Texas on, and uh, their son had actually, his name was David, he had actually uh, committed suicide uh, because of cyberbullying. And uh, as a result, uh, law enforcement, uh, before the new laws were changed, and uh, th this uh, couple was instrumental on changing laws in both the educational code and the criminal code and civil code in the state of Texas. But law enforcement was really stymied on trying to uh, put this forensic investigation together. So can you tell us a little bit about text messages and cell phones and IP addresses and things like that? How do we track those things as forensic investigators? Yeah, something, something about cell phone, even before we go into that, there's a there's some that I think is important to say about cell phones and kids and technology. You know, this is still the <clears throat> this is still the wild, wild west. This is still a this is uncharted territory. And uh, for people of a certain age, I'm in my late forties now and I've got I've got young children uh, that are of the right age to to use these technologies. These technologies didn't exist when you or I were kids, and for many people, they didn't exist. These are really relatively new technologies, so it's hard to imagine how how something like a something like a text could be bullying. I mean, when I was when I was in school, uh, bullying meant someone was hustling you for your lunch money, right? They wanted to, they wanted your lunch money so they could spend it. So that was bullying, or someone was making fun of the way you looked, the way you dressed. Uh, but today these technologies are pervasive and they are real. They're not, they are not make believe and uh, they really do have powerful real world connections to the people that are on, uh, that are on both ends. Uh, but as far as, as far as, as far as what we can do forensically with those, um, text messages by their very nature are going to go away. And Verizon's probably one of the largest carriers. Um, I think a lot of people are surprised. I know even people in law enforcement are surprised that, uh, let's say there's there's a bullying case. Let's say that maybe a middle school student is is receiving text messages from their peers, and they don't really like the content of those things, and they're not sure about what to do with it. So so they uh, so they don't say anything, and 
eventually this gets to a point where there's a there's a critical mass and uh, sounds like there was a very critical mass in the case that you were you were referring to in the parents in in uh, San Antonio um, and now we want to do some forensic investigation of this we want to we want to find out what those text messages were and we want to be able to read those either from a law enforcement standpoint or from a school standpoint and we we have the ability to look into that you've got 3 to 5 days Three to five days to get that information. So, and this is, by the way, this is the first I've heard of this. So this is great. I'm glad we're having this conversation. And I'm sure there's a lot of parents out there that are just really concerned about what their kids are doing. And and maybe we can take this conversation for for a few minutes and and go in that direction. Uh, Sure. But I had no idea that the text messages only last for for three to five days. Yeah, that's a. I mean, if you talk to if you talk to investigators that work with us that are that are doing this work on a regular basis, and this is their this is their bread and butter, uh, they know they've got a limited time in which they can write those search warrants to get that information. And we're talking about the content right now. We're not right. talking about that transactional activity that that I was talking about that that actual transaction, but the actual content. So, let's say there's an individual that's receiving, you know, threatening, bullying text messages, uh, Verizon's going to keep that information for a few days, and if it's deleted from everyone's phones, then the actual messages are gone. But the transactions are there. And of course, we know that um, if I know that two or three individuals have texted, uh, cyber-bullied somebody, and we're an investigator, and, you've, and you're armed with that information, then you're going to do what any investigator could do. They're going to go out and they're going to talk to those people. And a good investigator is going to is going to make some is going to make some hay from that. Tom, does that mean when we talk about these transactions, let's just pretend that the uh, that the text messages have uh, have been deleted? Are we mm-hmm. talking about uh, maintaining time and date stamps from point to point? Mm-hmm. That is correct. Uh, time stamps, uh, time and date when the transaction was sent or received, possibly both, um, possibly IP addresses as well. If it's if it's a technology that 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 can conform to that, um, you know, one thing I'd say about this too is, as a parent, as, as I think it's always a concern for parents, and if it's not, it certainly should be. Uh, the verdict is out as to as to what people should do with these if you've got a if you got a, if you have a teenage child and you're wondering well you know I'm not sure what my kids are doing and you know they've got a phone but I don't you know maybe don't monitor as well as I could there are services out there um, some some companies have cloud services in which you can put everything on so when someone makes a when someone texts somebody else on this given phone all those text messages are saved to the cloud and they are maintained and stored of course when we talk about criminal activity, not so much Nicholas Cruz, but um, you know, if we were running a narcotics, uh, you know, cartel, we're probably not going to invest in in having all of our text messages backed up. That's not in our interest. But from a parent standpoint, knowing what your children are doing, uh, this is something very real that uh, that you can do, and then you can take a look at those things, and those things are maintained. Oh, that's that's absolutely interesting. You know, going back, uh, I'm going to take us back a couple of years to the uh, San Bernardino uh, terrorist event on December uh, 2nd, I believe, of uh, 2016. 
uh, one of my uh, consultants, Nate Scarano, he's been on the program before, uh, was actually one of the first responders, one of the first law enforcement responders to that. And after that entire incident was over, and you remember this, uh, mm -hmm. because it took up quite a lot of uh, media space, is that we had the cell phones from uh, one of the terrorists. As a matter of fact, the uh, the male terrorist that was had actually been an employee by the county of San Bernardino working in the Department of Social uh, Services, and they were trying to get into his cell phone. And I thought, and you could correct me, you probably know the history of this much better than I do, but uh, I believe he had an Apple iPhone, and mm -hmm. that iPhone was encrypted, and I think it gave the FBI... Uh, a heck of a run for their money to try to get that uh, phone unencrypted and uh, get that phone unblocked by Apple. That's right. That's right. I mean, that was a um, that was an iPhone. It was an iPhone 5C. And when when the FBI had that phone, uh, they wanted the information off that phone. And clearly, they had a uh, they felt like they had some had some cause for that. And uh, when they were when they announced this, uh, I think they announced this in the beginning of beginning of sixteen uh, that they were unable to unlock that phone. Um, that was a that was a pretty big deal. Uh, that was a that was earth shaking by by a lot of folks' standpoints. Um, but the interesting thing about that was uh, the phone was one that was one part, right? That was one part of the whole process, and it was not the. Uh, it was not the deal breaker I and mean, it was not the, the core of the core of the case and different. Um, eventually, I think uh, maybe a couple months later, uh, DOJ announced that they did have that phone unlocked and uh, my company and individually, I'm not privy to exactly what that process was like, but, but they were able to eventually uh, to eventually get into that phone. But one thing I'd say is that as far as encryption, um, as far as investigations go with any kind of data, uh, going back to this concept about the end of anonymity, uh, I do not believe uh, from the information that we have now, I, I just don't think that there's really any, I don't think there's any source that is going to, that's going to prevent uh, active pursuit by law enforcement. I don't think that there's any process or, or any level of encryption or a manipulation of the TC TCPIP protocol stack that's going to uh, shield someone from an active investigation. Uh, I mean, from any generation, whether it's law enforcement in the 1850s or whether it's law enforcement in 2020 in the near future, uh, there's going to be people. There's people involved, and uh, there's going to be human interaction. And with that, always comes investigation. Um, exactly right. You know, uh, I want to talk a little bit about search warrants and, and just to sort of uh, preface our discussion. Uh, just want to let our, our listeners and team members know that uh, law enforcement officers, detectives, need probable cause to get a search warrant. They need reasonable suspicion to detain people and under some circumstances searching them. But with, when it comes to getting a search warrant or effecting an arrest, we need a little bit higher standard of proof, and that's referred to as probable cause. And we've talked about that on this program in the past. Probable cause generally defined as uh, circumstances, statements, facts, and forensic evidence that would lead a reasonably trained officer to believe that a person had committed a crime. And so with that introduction, uh, Tom, can you talk 
to us as a forensic investigator. I'm sure you've done a lot of search warrants uh, based off of digital forensics. How do you build your case to get the probable cause to secure a search warrant so now we can get into computers, get into cell phones, get into tablets, anything that holds digital forensic information? One of the first things I mentioned about about this is this is a this is an ongoing this is an ongoing area and the the verdict is not out on on these issues it is continually changing um, we have we have the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution of the United States and that is the right of the people to be secure in their persons houses and papers and effects against unreasonable search and seizure that is where that's where this whole concept comes from and uh, we've had this debate about about technology as it relates to to different devices um, when it comes down to something like a something like a cell phone and this a lot of this law came from the 1980s uh, you probably remember pagers pagers were a, were a thing right and uh, oh, yeah. people were a lot of narcotic activity focused around pagers had them. <laughs> yeah and doctors doctors had them too yeah. and you know kind of dating myself but uh, there was a time in which there was someone's beeper would go off and then they'd have to go find a phone because cell phones didn't exist yet and they would right. go and uh, make a phone call to the office and find out what the office wanted so people had a pager and so the question came down when someone was arrested with a pager what do we what do we do with that thing how do we treat that device um, can we can we seize it can we search it can we look at it what if the person gives us if they give us the right to search it can we use the data on there so we get a lot of we get a lot of case law being created around those devices and of course if someone gives you permission to search then uh, then they're they're allowing a law enforcement agency to do so but if someone said no then we get in this question about well can the department look at it anyway can we look at it without a search warrant and so we began to answer some of those questions, and then then devices got more complicated. A beeper, I think a beeper, I think the original ones had maybe maybe ten ten numbers, maybe. So right. it, it stored ten of the last phone calls that came in. And of course, if you were doing, if you were selling drugs, if you were selling narcotics in the 80s and you got arrested by someone in law enforcement they got that beeper you know those 10 numbers could they be uh, could they be clients could they be your suppliers could they be uh, maybe a safe house or a stash house uh, these are this is really valuable information but then we get into cell phones and of course today we have smartphones cell phones originally had a lot more data a lot more than 10 numbers stored they began to have numbers they began to have text messages and smartphones today not only have their own internal memory which is massive um, thousands of times what it was with the original beepers but now we also have the cloud so these devices now connect to other sources that virtually connected to the entire world. So when we talk about this for law enforcement, um, what type of search warrant do we have? What type of what type of uh, exigent circumstances are we dealing with? How important how important is this? Um, these are all questions when when we when we work with agencies to write a search warrant, everyone wants this. Everyone wants a search warrant template. 
I'm a part of a, a lot of uh, focus groups out there, and I, I saw one the other day that uh, someone uh, there's always some new service, there's always new some there's always some new device, and someone's wanted one for Bitcoin the other day, or they wanted one for one of the digital currencies, and does anyone have a search warrant for that? And generally, uh, our advice would be that search warrants don't really work like that. There's not a there's not a single template. And um, you've done a lot of work in California, and we've worked a lot with with uh, DOJ out there, and worked with a lot of prosecutors. And um, Mike Galley is uh, is a DDA in Northern California. And God, he, I know that name. <laughs> he does he, did, he does a lot of work in search warrants. Um, he's he's written books with us, and um, we've we've published some of his some of his writings, and uh, fantastic in the field. And he is he would be aghast. If uh, we just came out with a search warrant template, but uh, there are some things that, that you need to have um, and building that case, which is your original question, you know, building the case about the things that you're going to put into this. Um, there's always there's always introduction, officer background with any search warrant. Um, this, again, comes down to the one of the critical first steps, just who this individual is describing the training experience they have to even be able to speak about any of these things. Um, critical in the development of any kind of search warrant. Uh, early on is the establishment of probable cause. You know, hey, what is the Tom, I'm gonna, the facts? I'm going to break with you for a minute because this is absolutely fascinating, but we're coming up to a hard break. So let's do this. Let's just take that break, and when we come back, let's finish that discussion, uh, talk about some of the things that we want to get out of that search warrant, and then finally, I'd like people to know about what you do for a living and what your company's all about. We'll be right back. This is a Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. We're back with Tom Manson, digital forensic investigator from policetechnical.com. And when we left off, Tom, we were talking about just building up to that search warrant. Why don't we just go right back into that subject? I think our listeners would be fascinated uh, by what a digital forensic investigator like yourself uh, builds up into a search warrant and what you're going to ask for. 
Sure. You know, like I said, uh, one of the first things in any search warrant is going to be the officer's background, some of their history, uh, the uh, their training and their experience. Uh, building up that uh, is going to be is going to be critical. Uh, statutes for where this person is, uh, building up the affidavit and uh, putting in putting in their own state statutes and and making it specific to their jurisdiction. Probable causes is going to be next. Uh, how do we get to this point? Where are we? Uh, what has led us to, to come to this point? Uh, if we're looking at specific platforms in the probable cause, there's going to be some description about how this platform works, what we're looking for, whether this is a, whether this is a server that we're tracking down or whether it's an application, uh, figuring out who that company is. Virtually every entity uh, has some, has some connection portal for law enforcement. So there's always some place to be able to, to send this search warrant. Uh, once we have some description of what that service is, there has to be some information about what it is we're looking for. Uh, law enforcement doesn't want to go on a fishing expedition. And even though uh, you go deep sea diving, uh, we, we really typically don't want that. You want something specific. So if we had information, if we had something specific, such as Nicholas Cruz's posting that said, I want to be a professional school shooter, this is specific information. So we're going to want specific information related to that that piece of information. Uh, once we have that, uh, one of the things that we just stick in there is some type of request for non-disclosure. Um, strangely enough, uh, there have been instances for 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 digital requests in which the the company itself actually notifies the individual that they are releasing this information to a third party. And uh, one of the last things that we'd stick in there would be a request for non-disclosure, and then of course agency's uh, agency's name and. Um, uh, then that can be then that can be served once it's been signed by a judge. You know, Tom, it's just so fascinating talking with you about digital forensics. I'd like you to take a little bit of time uh, and talk with us about policetechnical.com. Ron, I was a I was an agent with U.S. Border Patrol in the 1990s, and when when I was in that environment, I realized that computer computer technology was 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 further behind with law enforcement than I thought it was, than further behind than where I thought it should be. So in 2005, I created Police Technical, and I was the original instructor. Uh, now we have about 20 instructors, and we run about 200 classes a year throughout the United States in, in purely technical areas. So we are in a specific technical space. Uh, not only are we federal contractors, but uh, we work at all levels, federal, state, and local. Uh, when when we began this discussion, uh, we began talking about Nicholas Cruz, and we knew that we had several classes that really could have could have made a difference there. Uh, could we have prevented that? That's 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 pretty lofty to say, but uh, we provide classes. We provide classes called Digital Fugitive Apprehension, and that specific course is about how to find someone digitally online. We provide courses in open source investigations and online investigations, uh, dark web and Google. And a lot of people look at a class like Google and say, well, why would we need a class on a search engine? Well, YouTube is owned by Google. So when we talk about providing law enforcement training in that area, uh, we're talking about things like training law enforcement and how to utilize these platforms. That's exactly what we do. In fact, that's all we do. How can people get a hold of you? 
the best way is obviously to go online. We're at policetechnical.com, and uh, we have inbound forms. We have we have a lot of classes that law enforcement can register for. We have a lot of classes that law enforcement can register for. We're doing training throughout the United States all the time in, in a whole series of technical areas. We also have a host page, easy to find on on the main website where agencies that they want to engage us specifically can fill out a form and we'll definitely be in touch with them. I think that's just such a useful, uh, very contemporary uh, product that you're providing. Uh, I can't thank you enough for being on my show, Tom. I can guarantee you we're going to have you back on again and again as these uh, issues uh, come to the surface. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence and America Out Loud.